News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. 20 days and counting for the protest now in Ottawa. And there are a lot of updates to get on what is happening there. And that's why Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, is joining us now. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. All right, let's start with the developments on the Emergencies Act, because we seem to know more now than we did when this was first announced a couple of days ago. Yeah, really scrambling to get more information. And finally, late last night, the details, the text was published uh, of what's in these regulations. The officials held a technical briefing for reporters uh, late in the afternoon. And even then, they didn't have the word of the text. So uh, trying to get some clear information uh, to report. But a few things that stood out uh, to me from the text of the regulation. One is the emphasis on minors. We hadn't heard that before. I mean, of course, we heard concerns over children uh, being at these protests, but specifically lays out in the regulations of the Act uh, that you are not allowed to travel to one of these protests with a minor, so you can't bring your kids, and you're also, and a kid is also not allowed to be at uh, these protests. Another thing that has received a lot of attention, and I I think you and I spoke about it yesterday, was the government's ability to direct tow truck companies to move trucks out of here. Well, in the technical briefing with officials uh, yesterday, there was some more and less clarity, let's say. It's a complicated (laughs) issue, but they did seem to suggest that police or government would be able to take those vehicles and use them. Um, And and I I won't get into the legalities or specifics around there because I'm not sure exactly what the plan is. But if a tow truck operator is reticent uh, to to be involved in this or afraid of repercussions or supports the cause or whatever the reason may be, uh, it does seem that the government has the ability uh, to use those trucks anyway. And then the biggest piece of the pie here uh, that was sort of made more clear maybe uh, in these regulations is is the fine the financial impact uh, still waiting to hear from the banks which had promised us a, a statement yesterday and, and couldn't get one together the entire day because there was no clarity here uh, but uh, what does this mean in terms of freezing bank accounts in terms of entities that now have to register with fintrack uh, report on any suspicious activity to CSIS and the RCMP uh, we hear some reports of protesters whose bank accounts have been frozen already um, uh, from just from social media reports on very I also was speaking with protester after protester yesterday and the day before who told me that they don't that they, they don't care that this doesn't bother them they're not going anywhere a frozen bank account does not uh, uh, does not uh, make a difference and I and I will point out that the concern here from um, the national security experts that we've spoken to uh, and, and 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 finance experts is that actually this could have much longer implications that actually if a bank I believe the term is de-risks an individual uh, that, that 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 could prevent them from getting a bank account in the future a mortgage a credit card, it could have some longer term impacts. Really? So, but as you said, you spoke to a lot of the protesters and they don't seem, mm-hmm. at this point, because I guess they probably haven't seen it in action yet, they're not that concerned. Well, you know what? That yeah, that's 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 exactly right. There, that you get a lot of different responses when you speak to protesters about why they're not leaving or why what they think of the Emergencies Act. Everything from you know people who don't believe it because they say, oh, the government's had all these threats before and no action. So either they say, you know, it's not it's not happening, uh, or they say, like the family I spoke to yesterday, they don't trust the banks. Their money's not in the banks anymore. They declined to tell me uh, where they keep their their funds, but uh, hmm. not uh, not a bank client anymore. Won't apply to them. Uh, and then, and then, you know, I spoke to to a man who I think is 
representative of, of some number of people in this protest who looked at me and said, yeah, freeze my bank accounts after everything else that's been done to me during this pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. He just feels completely worn down right. by, by mandates, by restrictions, by, by, by losing his business. Uh, he, he feels that, uh, that, that, that there's nothing else for him to do but literally stand in the street uh, and protest this. He said, you know, I'm not here to topple government. Uh, as, as the public safety minister has said, what this really boils down to, that there's a small, a small organized group here where that's their intent. But you speak to some people on the street and they are genuine in saying that they're not here to bring down the government. They're here because they want an end to mandates, which have had a devastating toll on their lives. Right. But as you say, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, so in yes. the middle of all of this, then Abigail, <laughs> I don't the Ottawa police chief chose yesterday to say he's quitting. Yes, um, you know we're 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 being careful with our language there around the auto uh, around whether he chose yesterday or not. The the language was interesting at the police services board meeting yesterday. They talked about a mutual separation. Um, Chief Slowly or former Chief Slowly, I should say, put out a statement uh, saying that uh, it is with a heavy heart that he is stepping down. Uh, a lot to come out in the wash there, I think, of mm. of, of the details of, of of what went on. But you can imagine for frustrated Ottawa residents who have felt that there has been no action for 20 days or not enough action or any number of other worse adjectives, uh, you can imagine that they that they would like to know how things move forward now and that it uh, it seems that there is, you know, not so not such a clear leadership uh, or a leadership vacuum in place. There is the deputy chief, Steve Bell, has now stepped in. He is interim chief. He briefed uh, the police services board in a in a partially public meeting uh, yesterday where he was asked a lot of questions, not by media, may I point out, and may I point out that it's it's Wednesday, and there has not been an opportunity to ask police questions since Friday in the middle of what is a <laughs> scene. Uh, and yes. so the the deputy police chief or the interim police chief um, basically just kept repeating that he had a plan. He will give no details of those pl- of that plan, no. no details on timing, no details on on how it will be carried out because uh, for you know policing operation reasons right. does not want to give the protesters a heads up but but you can imagine the frustration among residents and so the, the police services boards counselors who uh, are trying to get some answers for their residents asked any number of ways okay so you're going to brief us before this plan will the briefing be in 48 hours can you give us any indication of how close we are and we heard federal ministers saying we don't want to see another weekend of this it, essentially that there's been three weekends and, right. and we talked about you know how, how, how much busier uh, the weekends get with the with the hot tubs and the DJs and the thousands Oh, people in the streets and, boy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there's all that going on. And then you had you were dealing with that, Abigail, yesterday. And on top of that, we've got some travel restrictions being lifted at the border. I mean, that was yes. that's a big enough story as it is. You know, at any other day, that would have been uh, story number one. And I think for most people, that is what they would like to know about. So a few things um, that came out of there and, and it's a bit muddled or or it's not so it's not so easy as you don't need tests anymore. That's certainly not the case. Here are the changes. When you are returning, the on-arrival test, that has now gone back to being completely randomized. There was that whole move to test everybody at the border coming in by air. It was, you know, really had some logistical challenges, if nothing else, in order to to process those large numbers. But as of the 28th of February, that goes back to randomized. And here's another big impact for people wanting to travel. If you are randomly selected to get a test on your way back into the country, you do not need to quarantine until that test result comes back. And that had been a sticking point uh, for a lot of people. The other important point here is you still need to get a test 
on your way back into Canada, separate from the one upon arrival, a pre-arrival test, which until now or currently at this moment had been a PCR test within 72 hours. Now you can get an antigen test as well. So making it a little cheaper and a little easier. Uh, the government is also planning on stepping back from the uh, blanket travel advisory against all non-essential travel. Oh, wow. Okay, that is big stuff. Well, Abigail, thank you for covering all of it. We appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So as we just heard from Abigail Beeman there, we know that some of the travel restrictions are being lifted. But I got a lot of emails from people saying, well, what does this actually mean? Can you go to Bellingham and go shopping and come back and not have to take a test? Well, let's get some of those things answered for you right now. Joining us now is Natalie Preddy, who's a travel and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So we still need a test, right? If we go down to the United States for whatever reason. Absolutely. So although you do not need a PCR test coming back, you do need a rapid antigen test. So the big thing here uh, is the price difference. A PCR test is going to cost you, you know, upward of $150, uh, where a rapid, rapid antigen test will cost you about 40 That's a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you think this will result in a lot more people wanting to travel? Well, I think the biggest part of this announcement was that uh, children 12 and under that are unvaccinated and are traveling with fully vaccinated parents no longer have to quarantine for two weeks. And I feel like that was a big deterrent for families looking to go away. But now, as your kids don't have to stay home with you for two weeks when you come back, a lot more people are looking to travel. And also, you've eliminated, you know, if you've got a family of five, that's, you know, $1,000 worth of PCR tests. Um, so the fact that that's that has been eliminated is really getting people excited about travel. Okay, so are people, do you think, making plans? Is the demand there? Absolutely. People were um, people were looking to travel beforehand. They were just quiet about it. I was getting lots of questions that are saying, hey, I'm thinking of going to Jamaica, but don't tell anybody. So, you know, I think people are uh, shedding the shame uh, and are, are now openly looking for trips abroad. And yes, if you start looking for flights now, uh, this pent-up demand means that prices have skyrocketed. So uh, to, to fly somewhere, let's say, Dominican for a family of, of five, you know, you're looking at around $4,000. Um, it, it, it's still really, really expensive. But when it comes to insurance, the prices are better there now as well. So Canada quietly removed their non-essential travel ban. So we've gone from a level three down to a level two. And that helps when buying insurance and going away as well, because it's less of a risk. So uh, it's less of a cost for insurance companies. Right. Okay. So that sounds like it'll work out better for people who are planning, say, a bigger trip. But these smaller trips, like if you want to go for a weekend or something like that, these these rules all still apply. Yeah, yeah, the rules still apply. However, you can now take your kids uh, and your travel, uh, your testing coming back, you do need to get tested. But if you are fully vaccinated, and that's the thing here, if you are not fully vaccinated, you the old rules still apply. Um, but uh, if you are fully vaccinated, you do still need to take a test, but just a rapid antigen test. So I have been getting a, a lot of emails from people on this whole travel issue, because I think, you know, if you're planning the bigger trip, 
yes, this is certainly a more positive thing for you. The fact that the federal government is, you know, lifting these restrictions. But if you just want to go down to the States for, you know, lunch down in Bellingham, do some shopping, pick up some groceries, this is not helpful for you. Um, And that's pretty much what Julie wrote me to say. Julie said, you know, as America winds down their testing clinics and goes to more in-home tests, this won't make it any easier for people crossing the land border. We'll still need to go to a health provider the government approves of or use some kind of telemedicine. What about people who've recovered from COVID? Are they still exempt? Julie asks. Government always creates more questions than answers. She said this isn't helpful for land crossings. Julie, I think you're right on that. I mean, the best that you could do is buy some of the cheaper, I guess, you know, rapid antigen tests, like the Switch Health ones, which I think they're two for $79 or something. But still, that really adds to the cost of even a day trip or going down there for whatever, you know, a couple of days. It's still added costs. And people are saying, why are we even doing this? You can weigh in with your thoughts. Are you planning a trip now, maybe, because of this lifting of some of the travel restrictions? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So how do you feel about the fact that restrictions are about to be dropped? Quite a lot of them. So tomorrow, this weekend, it's going to look very different here in BC than it did just last weekend. One of the big deals, of course, is that we're dropping restrictions for indoor and outdoor gatherings. Bars and nightclubs will be able to reopen. Events can operate at 100% capacity. So is everybody ready to ramp up, go back out, enjoy themselves this weekend? Well, joining us now is Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thanks for being back with us. Of course. All right. How are you feeling about this weekend? <laughs> well, there's a whole bunch of release out there, a lot of excitement, and, and people are giddy, honestly. I mean, we're, we're seeing people booking bands, they're booking DJs, they're planning programming, uh, reservations are up, we're, we're booking receptions again. It's going to be a heck of a great weekend, and we hope it'll be the first of many. Okay, so then what happened, Jeff, when this announcement came yesterday? Did the phone start ringing, like, right away? Well, pretty much, yeah. I mean, there's been a whole segment of customers that, uh, particularly young consumers, that they're just dying to go out and celebrate. They haven't been able to for the past two years. Um, there's also a whole bunch of other consumers who've just stayed home because they've been nervous about the Omicron variant. And now that we know that we're reducing restrictions, it's beginning to feel like we've finally conquered COVID, right? This feels like a very significant moment for people. And we're finally able to move forward, start to repair so much of the financial damage that COVID has done to our businesses. Uh, and I guess they... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, is there hope then? Like when you talk about repairing that financial damage, do there's a lot of places that were probably just hanging on. Is this next little while going to be kind of make or break time? Yeah, for context, I mean, there's there's no going back for some folks. I mean, about 15 to 20% of the industry have already been decimated by this pandemic. For those who survived, many of them had clinging on with, you know, federal government wage supports and grants here in BC. That, that's not what anybody wanted. Everyone wants to get back to work. So, yeah, it feels like we finally have a chance to operate. I mean, we know there's a bunch of pent-up demand, particularly for younger consumers who are just dying to get out there to the dance clubs and go back to you know the neighborhood pubs that have bands. And we, we expect to see a lot of them out there this weekend having fun for the first time. And it's, it's going to be an exciting weekend. Okay. And so people are clearly ready to embrace this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and I have to also say, I'm, I'm really proud of how the businesses and workers in BC's hospitality industry have worked together to get through this because we would not be where we are today without a high level of mask usage and people getting vaccinated following those public health rules, even though those rules had a real damaging consequence on our business. I mean, one of the biggest changes yesterday is 
just removing those restrictions at our capacity. We don't have to keep tables too because the part we can, you know, allow you to have more than six people at a table. You can mingle. So it's it feels a lot more like it used to be two years ago, which I know feels like a long time ago. Um, but we're uh, yeah, we're really excited to have a chance to make some profit again for the first time in a while. Okay, so does that mean that everything is back on? And also, can places get ramped up in time even for this weekend? Well, yeah, there's there's still some restrictions in place, and and there's also you know massive disruptions to our supply chain out there. And most concerningly, we, we're in the middle of a massive labor shortage, so it you're not going to necessarily see everybody back where they want to be this weekend, right? This is going to take some time for industry for sure. Uh, in fact, I'd say if anybody's looking for a job, you can pop into any neighborhood pub, restaurant, bar, nightclub, and probably get an interview on the spot if you want to right now. <laughs> I was just it's, thinking uh, that. I thought, you know what, Jeff, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking to you about a labor shortage problem. Yeah, it's already serious. I mean, our, in the pre-pandemic, we employ about 190,000 people in our industry. We're one of the largest private sector employers. We're somewhere between twenty and 30,000 workers short right now, which is why when you go to a restaurant or pub, sometimes it maybe takes a bit longer than it used to. Um, but part of that has been because we've had restrictions on our revenue and the businesses haven't been able to, to really offer the same kind of shifts and the same kind of um, you know employment that we had previously. But we're getting back to that now. So I expect these are going to be great jobs again, and, and um, we're hoping that in the next few weeks we'll get customers back as well as workers. Okay, so what is there a plan for that? Like, how do you lure workers back to this? Oh, every business uh, has their own challenges with it. And I, I know industries also, you know, our association and others are working on longer-term solutions. But in the interim, you know, you try and, you know, offer people flexibility and benefit plans and increasing, you know, it's, you never get higher wages in the hospitality industry than you do right now. So it's it's been, um, you know, a whole variety of tactics to get people out there. Okay, so for now, this is good news. I guess you're just waiting to see, will the public respond? And what is your sense of that? Well, you know what's interesting, too, is people are just done with COVID, right? And I, I think sometimes we forget, because COVID gets so politicized, that it's, it's a deadly virus. It would help sometimes for folks is to think about, you know, or look at vaccination rates of other well-known viruses like polio or measles or something like that that we defeated. And once you get above 90% of the population, uh, being vaccinated, those are easy to stop becoming a threat to the population. So we have some people who, even though these public health restrictions have been lessened, they're just so done with COVID, they say more than 90% of the population is vaccinated. Why do I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to show my vaccine passport? So we're going to face some challenges around those things still. Um, but ultimately, the restrictions that have really been on our businesses are being lifted. And it's, we're going to be able to get back to something like right. normal. And, and as customers have that experience, I think we're going to adjust. Right. Are you a little concerned about that, though? Because you're right. If that, if that is, there is that attitude and people feel like it's back to normal, will there be any enforcement of the restrictions that are left? Yeah, well, I think you know, the masks and the passports are different. So the vaccine verification, that's like what, what's really the challenge from a customer perspective. There. I mean, we've been using them to keep customers and workers safe and to ensure everybody inside the pub, restaurant or bar has been vaccinated. It's more of an awkward symbol that we're not done with COVID yet. And ultimately, flashing your phone is not a big deal. Masks are definitely annoying, and I do think we're going to have some, some challenges with, you know, younger patrons in nightclubs who are allowed to mingle and dance with strangers and be inches apart, but have to wear a mask. That's that's not going to make a lot of sense to people, um, but we're probably a month or two away from having that removed as well, and uh, again, it's, this is not like the first time we've had to enforce rules in, in the industry. We're, we're pretty good at it, so we'll figure it out. So, like, looking at it, with all things considered, that's one of the rules that you're like, yeah, 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 we can do that one, as long as everything yeah. else is open and back to normal. Yeah, absolutely right. And and I know there's a lot of push people want, you know, get rid of all the protocols. But, you know, Dr. Henry is the provincial health officer for a reason, and this is her area of expertise. 
So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with it as long as she needs us to. And I think the, the vaccine verification has had a really positive impact on society overall. So there's, there's been some clear benefits to that one. Um, and we're having to deal with people being masked. I mean, you, you can see it even when we talk to inspectors who come through our establishments and they're, they're tired of it that too, but, um, right. but we'll, we'll definitely deal with it. It's, you know, the, you walk into any licensed establishment in the province any given day, we're dealing with some kind of challenge with customers as it is. So we'll be fine. Oh, that's so true. All right, listen, good luck. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Jeff Quinard, who's the executive director of Able BC, looking forward to nightclubs and bars reopening uh, as of tomorrow, really. But yeah, they'll need jobs. He said anybody could probably walk into a bar or nightclub in the next little while and get an interview on the spot. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's not just the hospitality industry, but many businesses now dealing with the fact that restrictions are going to be expiring tonight at 11.59 p.m., meaning tomorrow it's completely different. So how are some of these businesses going to deal with these this new situation? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Bridget Anderson, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Good morning, Bridget. Hi, Simi. What are you hearing from businesses? Because obviously this is a, this is a pretty quick change for a lot of them. It, you know, it was a quick change yesterday, but it was a very welcome change. You know, there are so many businesses that are still struggling and have been waiting for these uh, restrictions to be eased. I was just listening to Jeff's comments, particularly tourism, hospitality, uh, also in the live events um, space. So this was great news yesterday. And many, many businesses and individuals are just so eager to, to have these restrictions eased and to be able to get back out there again. Okay, and are businesses ready, do you think, or are there plans in place, or will it take some time? Well, if you think about what it's been like over the last two years, there has been some gradual reopening and easing of restrictions, and then just before Omicron hit, there was back to, we took a couple of steps back. So most businesses have a COVID-19 plan that's a little bit like an accordion, where they can add restrictions or take them down. So it's not going to take businesses, most businesses, that long to be able to respond. You know, what I think for businesses, it's a bit of a cautious optimism right now. We're hopeful that this uh, situation, the health situation is improving and also hopeful that businesses can remain open and stay open. I was very happy to hear Dr. Bonnie Henry say that she hopes that, you know, all things considered, that we won't have to take a step back to further restrictions. And for businesses, it is about that certainty and that's so important. So optimistic that uh, things are continuing to go in the right direction. Okay, but as Jeff also mentioned, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, I said I'll probably be talking to him about a, a labor shortage. Are, are the people there to fill all these jobs that businesses are going to need to fill? Simi, back in October, we surveyed our members and the two biggest concerns that our members had at the Board of Trade were around recruitment and retention of employees and also the cost of goods, given what's happening with inflation. So it's not an easy time for many businesses, particularly small and medium businesses. Many businesses in the province have taken on an average of nearly $130,000 in debt during the pandemic. And then looking at trying to hang on to talent or get new talent in the door, really challenging time. And it's going to be 
quite difficult for many businesses to ramp up to get that labor into place. So as I said, cautious optimism and a lot of work to do. Yeah, do customers, do you think, need to be a little patient, perhaps? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and that is something that, uh, you know, I don't think we see enough of sometimes. But, you know, especially when it comes to, and Jeff was just speaking about, about restaurants, um, we've known for some time that there hasn't been enough labor in the restaurant sector and that is going to continue so those service sectors having said that you know we are seeing a time where university students are coming out of uh, their studies and so they'll be looking for work so hopefully this summer we will see more of that kind of traditional student go to those uh, sectors and hospitality and tourism and that will make a difference but it is going to be uh, take some time to ramp up for sure. Will this mean a return to the workplace do you think will it back to in-person work? I was very happy to hear Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about that yesterday. Many, many offices downtown have had their employees remote working for two years now. And so the indications are that, you know, every business has to have a COVID-19 plan, but encouraging workers to get back to the office. And it's not just to get people back in the office. There is a, there's a whole host of reasons to do so around productivity and mental health and wellness. But it's really important for people to come back to the office and it's really important for the vibrancy of the downtown core. We know what's in the downtown that it has been emptier than, than usual. And so it will be really good to see people come back and to be filling the streets uh, as the weather is getting better and walking around and, and supporting those downtown businesses like dry cleaners and shoe repair and, and restaurants. Okay, so it's clearly like for businesses, it is you would like to see people get back to their habits of what, two years ago? Absolutely. Uh, the time is now to start to return to some of those activities that we have, many of us have put on hold for a couple of years, and, and recognizing that many small and medium businesses really do need their support um, as they are ramping back up. All right, we'll see what happens. Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Cindy. Bridget Anderson is the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Businesses are ready, they are ramping up, but do they have all the employees that they need? No, they don't. That's going to be the next next big challenge that they face, even though they've currently been facing it all through the pandemic as well. And if you're a business out there, let me know how you're feeling about this this morning. Are you ready for this? Are you short people? Is it going to be gradual for you? Simi at cknw.com. Hey, also a reminder here, we need your love stories. We've got our contest going today. It's our hearts racing contest. You could win two grandstand tickets to the Canadian E-Fest happening June the 30th to July the 2nd. You get to see the great car race going on. It's going to be quite the event. It's like the Molson Indy, but quieter because it's electric cars. But we thought we'll take that theme of racing and apply it to love. Tell us who gets your heart racing and why. What was it like the first time you met them? Tell us about that story. Call our buzz line. Leave your name and number 604-331-2899. Tell us all about it and we can share that story with everyone else. And who knows, you may be the winner of the two grandstand tickets to the Canadian E-Fest. This is Mornings with Simi. As we look ahead to events and things returning, more of a back to normal, we look down the line at big events that could come here to our province. And of course, let's talk about the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Originally, we weren't going to be a part of it because it was expensive. But now we heard in the last couple of weeks, things may change. Perhaps 
we can get BC or Vancouver in on hosting a couple of those games. That is the World Cup that is going to be shared between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So where are we at with that idea? Well, joining us now is Melanie Mark, BC's Minister for Tourism, Culture, and Art. Thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning to me. How far along are we in the idea that we might be able to do this? Well, we're in active discussions. Um, we've convened a partner, uh, sorry, a, a table of partners, including the city of Vancouver, uh, YVR, Pavco, Destination Vancouver. Uh, we're engaging to look at uh, the potential to be a host city right here in Vancouver, which is just um, an opportunity of a lifetime. It's a once in a generation opportunity. I know decisions have to be made um, by you know, Canada Soccer and FIFA in April. So we're a couple of months out, but I can tell you that we're putting our best foot forward. Uh, We're giving our best shot um, to invite the world uh, to Vancouver for this opportunity, not just for the sports fans, but to support those sectors that I I hear you talk about every morning. You know, the hospitality sector, the tourism tourism sector, the retail sector, they've all been hit so hard because of COVID, floods, fires, you name it. And so it might only seem four years away, but events like this will have a big impact on on the sector that's been really hit hard by COVID. Now, Minister Mark, I'm going to say you sound fairly positive. I'm a pretty I'm a pretty positive person, uh, Simi. In the middle of a pandemic, I'm going to see the glass half full. Uh, I'm the co-chair for the Council of Ministers of Tourism uh, for the country. I think that we've got a, a track record, a proven track record to host the world. Uh, we've got a lot to offer in Vancouver. We've got a world-class stadium uh, at BC Place. And uh, like I said, we're going to give it our best shot. How many potential games are we talking about? I, I, there's a few numbers that have been thrown out there. It could be anywhere from three to five. Uh, as I said, the team's working hard. Our, our ultimate goal is to maximize the benefits of this opportunity, not just for Vancouverites, but for British Columbians. And so, um, you know, it's on my Twitter page. Uh, my my NISCA name should be Briefcase Warrior. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna give our best shot to make sure we get maximum benefits for BC. And I really, really hope that we have a chance to give the sector good news in the next couple of months. Okay, so what are the potential concerns here? Like you talked about everybody getting together to talk about it, but what what might be some hiccups? Well, I think when you're when you're inviting the world uh, to your to your city, you know, being a host city is an incredible opportunity. But of course, it comes with responsibility. So, you know, the city's got its role to play. The airport's got its role to play. We're all at the table right now in those discussions. So. I'll have to give you more news in the next couple of months because everyone's working around the clock uh, to sort out those details. But, you know, we've, we've got to look at the best interests of British Columbians here, right? And the big picture is we've got a stadium uh, that we own. It's a crown. Uh, we want to see fans in the stands. We want to see the businesses supported uh, because they've suffered, right? They were the first to, to be hit by this pandemic and they're going to be the last to return. So that's our focus right now is, is giving it our best shot. And any concerns um, that c- come up, we're going to be advocating to be addressed. That's, that's my job. Premier right. has asked me to be an advocate for the sector and to be an advocate for British Columbians. What was the reaction like when this first came up a week or so ago now that OBC is kind of back in the hunt for this? What was the reaction like? What did you hear? 
I, a lot of excitement. <laughs> I'm sorry for smiling. My riding is on commercial drive. And so it's, you know, home to little Italy. Uh, you know, people from coast to coast around the world tune into to soccer. Look at where our men's team is right now. Think about where our women were last year. I mean, we are, the stars are aligning at this moment when, we're, when we think about soccer. And, you know, all those historical touchstones that our, our men are doing, they're on a, on a track record, they're going to the games. It's been since 1986. I'll repeat that. Like, 1986 since our our men have, at, have been at the FIFA World Cup. So I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, there are a lot of people that are asking me as minister to, to give it our best shot. But I'm a very measured person. I'm, I'm very disciplined. Um, Simi around, you know, the, the deal's got to be in the best interest of BC. That, that's the bottom line. And that's what our, our senior officials have a mandate to do at this moment. Yeah, originally now four years ago when we took ourselves out of the running, it was because, you know, people had concerns, we had concerns about FIFA, the amount of money they wanted. It just wasn't a great deal for British Columbians. Has that changed? Are there are the parameters different now? I think what's changed is we've had a sector um, basically on life support for the last two years. For 24 months, they've gone without, um, as I said, retail, hospitality, tourism, you name it. They've been hit so hard. And so, you know, premiers asked me to be creative, to get out there and do what I can to put BC on the map. Destination Vancouver is on the table with us. Uh, we, we're, we have a beautiful city. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity. And so, you know, those negotiations or discussions are all about compromise, I think. You come to the table, you give it your best shot. Um, we're going to put our best foot forward. And, and I say, as I say, I think the opportunity to think about Vancouver hosting the FIFA World Cup in 2026 is just something that we need to, uh, we, we just can't ignore this opportunity. All right. Well, I'm hoping you'll come back then and tell us what the news is when the time comes. I can't wait. Okay, we're going to hold you to that. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. (laughs) All right, that is Melanie Mark, the Minister for Tourism, Culture and Art. She is stick handling the potential entry of Vancouver into hosting some games for the 2026 World Cup. Now, remember, that's going to be shared by Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Right now, Toronto is going to host a couple of games. I think maybe Edmonton was going to host a couple of games, but that was it. Montreal bowed out. Vancouver had bowed out, you know, four years ago. But here we are back in it. And I'm just going to say, kind of listening between the words there and reading between the lines, I would say we have a very, very good feeling about Vancouver being in this, hosting as many as three to five of those games. Can't even imagine how huge that would be for the tourism industry, for sports fans here in the city. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're still learning about the Emergencies Act, which is being invoked to deal with the ongoing protests that we have seen in places like Ottawa. Getting the details as well about what that involves. We heard from Abigail Beeman earlier this morning where she said, really, it was late yesterday where we finally got the legal language that the federal government plans on using. And clearly, a lot of it focuses is on money. And that is, where does this money come from? What is it being used for? So there are a lot of anti-money laundering laws that are going to be kicking in. But, you know, for those of us here in BC who have watched, you know, this money laundering discussion happen over the last five, six years, we wonder, 
Where are all these money laundering laws when we need them to investigate stuff that is going on right here? Joining us now is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, to talk more about that. Good morning, Mayor West. Good morning, Simi. What did you think when you heard about that, that you thought, oh, we're going to use money laundering laws to deal with this? Well, exactly what you just said. Uh, where, where the heck have they been? Everyone in British Columbia knows the consequences of money laundering all too well for our province. We've had thousands of our citizens killed by poison drugs. We've had billions of dollars that have been made off of those deaths that have been turned around and laundered in our housing market, in our casinos. Uh, and we've had organized crime both in this country and overseas that have been coordinating all of this be able to walk away scot-free with absolutely zero consequences. And government has been seemingly incapable of doing anything to stop it. And I I was just sort of like, wait, wait, this is a thing? There's something else you can do? You have additional powers and now you're choosing to use them? Where have you been? British Columbia has suffered immensely because of the money laundering, which, by the way, has been happening to the tune of billions of dollars. So this kind of opens our eyes to the possibilities here. So when you see some of these techniques that are potentially being used, is there a way, do you think, for us to use that here in BC? Oh, I would say absolutely, because, look, uh, the money is being moved around, uh, and it's being moved around uh, through, through bank accounts, uh, you know, yet, uh, you know, yes, we've, we've seen the hockey bags full of cash, absolutely. But, you know, eventually that money makes its way into someone's bank account. Uh, there's the, the transfer of these funds uh, out of jurisdictions overseas, both to other countries and into our country. Uh, so, absolutely, when, when you, and you said it, the details are still uh coming, shall we say, in terms of what this is going to allow. But when you hear about the freezing of bank accounts, uh, when you hear about the investigative powers, when you hear about uh, FinTrack, I mean, these are all the things that you just say, where has this been? But right, what we don't know, Mayor West, at this point is how the banking industry is going to feel about this. They still haven't you know, talked publicly about their role in all of this because they are going to have to be the gatekeepers. Well, and, and that to me has is, is been another glaring issue with respect to, to money laundering uh, in this province, particularly as it relates to uh, uh, real estate uh, and casinos. You know, Sam Cooper called it willful blindness, and I think that that nails it. You know, you don't move billions of dollars of dirty blood money around without the assistance of some individuals who probably have an idea that that money has been obtained illegally. And whether that's on the banking side uh, or the legal side, uh, you know, there's a big component there where uh, people have just been, not only government, but others who help facilitate have turned a blind eye. And and that's another area where uh, government should be acting very strongly. Right, but allow me to play devil's advocate here. Are we asking too much, though, of banks? So now we're going to say, well, FinTrack rules are going to apply to all of this. We have trouble already with the way the system is set up, getting the information that we need. Is this going to just cause more confusion, more delays? Well, 
always have a hard time feeling sorry for banks, that's for sure. But no, look, the reality is if they're going to be in, in the business that they're in, uh, they're going to have to play by the rules. Uh, and, and, you know, it, with respect particularly to the money laundering situ- situation that we have uh, in, in British Columbia, uh, you know, there's there's no question i mean whether it becomes a headache for them or not yeah it probably is but you know what we should not allow them to just turn a blind eye uh, and help facilitate the the transfer of billions of dollars of that type of money in our province uh, and, and government should be very strong uh, in enforcing that and and fintrack should be very strong and and you know that's another area where uh, we've seen a real failure to be able to do anything to curb money laundering uh, in this province and in our country is, you know, FinTrack has, has not been able to get the job done. And whether it's resources or whether it's authorities, uh, we need to be looking at uh, other places, other jurisdictions that are much stronger on this and have been much more successful. Uh, and, it sh- and, you know, again, I just come back to, uh, I, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around that, it's at this moment for this particular issue with respect to the protests that the federal government suddenly wakes up out of its slumber and says, oh, well, we have all these powers that we can, uh, that we can employ. Again, right. where have they been when this province has gone through what it has over the last number of years? All right. Well, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me, Simi. That's Brad West, Mayor Porco Coquitlam, talking about the money laundering situation here in BC, right? About how we haven't been able to crack down enough, not to the satisfaction, I think, of most British Columbians. And yet here we see anti-money laundering rules, you know, FinTrack being used to crack down on the protests and the convoy and everything that's happening in Ottawa. Some people question, well, where was all of these? Where were these tools to help BC? If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com.